Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone today. Uh, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Zechariah. And so, just to help you out a little bit, go to the end of the Old Testament and go back two books, and there you'll find this 14-chapter prophecy given through a series of visions to this man, this faithful man, Zechariah. So 14 chapters and 40 minutes, hey, no big deal, right? Well, <laughs> I think we'll see about that. But we are almost home, I will say that. We, uh, when I was a kid, me and the other kids in our neighborhood, we'd, we'd walk back and forth to school every day, and it was about a two-mile walk uh, there and two-mile walk back, and it was actually a lot of fun. I mean, we, we, we really enjoyed it. It's all we knew. We had a great time doing that, but there was always this special feeling that we'd get when we get close to home, and I'm starting to have that feeling as we're almost through our study of the Minor Prophets. We, we have just this week in the book of Zechariah, and then just one more week in the book of Malachi. And then we'll have accomplished our goal of working our way through the Minor Prophets as a church. And I hope our study has been uh, both challenging and encouraging uh, to you. In all of my years in the church, I've never had anyone preach through the Minor Prophets in all of my years. I had never done it until uh, here recently. And so I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the study. I was thinking this week, you know... uh, when you preach a message, anyone who's worth their weight in salt are going to spend a lot of time reading and studying and preparing. And, um, you know, sometimes that can get to be 25, 30 hours a week. And so we come here on a Sunday morning, and in 40 to 45 to 50 minutes, I'm trying to share with you what I learned over the course of an entire week. And so it's a bit of a challenge, and especially today, because the book of Zechariah has 14 chapters. And so it would be virtually impossible to get into the weeds on every verse or even every section of such a large book. And so we're just going to do an overview. That's what we've kind of have done with each of the minor prophets. I told a pastor friend of mine this past week, I said, my message for today is sort of going to be like watching Sports Center. While a game may have lasted three hours or four hours, you know, the people at ESPN are able to summarize the game, just showing the highlights, and that's about all we're going to be able to do today. So we want to begin uh, today by looking at the author of this book, So you notice here in verse 1, in chapter 1, that Zechariah is identified as the author. And what's interesting about Zechariah is that he was not only a prophet, but he has a priestly lineage as he is the grandson of the priest Idu, who is mentioned here. Idu is one of the many priests named in Nehemiah chapter 12, who served in Israel during this transitionary period from the 70-year exile in Babylon to now being back in their homeland. And so look with me at verse 1. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Idu. And so as I mentioned last week, as we looked at the book of Haggai, Zechariah and Haggai are contemporaries of one another, which means they're living in the same exact era of time. 
In fact, their prophecies are just a couple of months apart. So with Zechariah's priestly lineage, he, of course, would have been very familiar with the worship practices of the Jews, and that plays a huge part in this prophecy because, as we considered last week, God wants his temple rebuilt. All there is right now, when he is giving this prophecy, all there is is a foundation on the temple mount. The project had stalled out. The people's hearts had grown cold for God. They, they were apathetic, as we considered last week. They were complacent. And so Zechariah has a very similar job as Haggai did. And primary here to what he wants to share is that the temple needs to be rebuilt. Because, as we said last week, this is the seat of worship for the Jews. And so this is a very important part of the spiritual economy of Israel And so this is part and parcel of his message is that we need to get the temple rebuilt. So before we dive into this today, I think it'd be helpful just to do a little bit of a review as to what's going on. Maybe you missed last week. Uh, Maybe uh, you need a bit of a refresher here. So so Zechariah has returned back to Israel with his father and with his grandfather, He is a young man who was born during that 70-year exile in Babylon, and he's actually identified as a young man in chapter 2 and verse 4. But just as a side note, which I find to be interesting, Zechariah's life and ministry most likely extended into the reign of Xerxes, who was the king who made Esther the queen of Persia. And so the Jews started to return back to their homeland somewhere around 538 B.C. during the reign of King Cyrus of Persia. And you recall by this time that the Persian Empire had supplanted the Babylonian Empire as the dominant ruling influence, and King Cyrus had compassion on the Jews, and he was the first to encourage them to rebuild their temple. He even gives them back, if you remember, he gives them back all of the temple artifacts that were confiscated when Babylon invaded Jerusalem. So the beginning date of this prophecy is roughly the same as Haggai's. It's 520 B.C. So 18 years had passed since the Jews started to progressively return back to their homeland. Darius is now king of Persia, and God uses this one-two punch of Haggai and Zechariah to deliver his message to the people of Israel. What's especially interesting here is the diversity in the two prophets' approach. While Haggai's overall message was more of a direct tone in pointing out that the Jews were apathetic in their approach to life, and, and they were very cold toward God. So he takes more of a direct tone. Zechariah comes at this a little bit differently, as we'll see today. He takes a noticeably softer, more encouraging tone to implore the Jews to rebuild the temple. And really, it's a reminder that there could be multiple successful approaches of motivation. There are times for rebuke, and there's times for encouragement. Sometimes both are necessary. If you've been a parent for any length of time at all, you know that that, in fact, is the case, right? Sometimes we have to come down on our kids who are disobedient, and we must lay the hammer down, right? We must rebuke them for what they have done. Other times, we may take a more gentle approach, a more encouraging approach. Both are necessary. It's interesting, though, that Haggai was much older than Zechariah. 
he was more of a rebuker. And Zechariah was significantly younger than Haggai, and he was more of an encourager. So let's keep that in mind, and I want to come back to that later in the message. But what we're going to find today uh, in the book of Zechariah are two main sections, okay? These were written during two different periods of time. So we've got to get our heads around this a little bit here this morning as we begin. It's almost a phase one and phase two, okay? Phase one is chapters one through eight, which were written during the building of the temple, okay? All during the same era of time as Haggai wrote his prophecy. But there's a phase two here, okay? There's a phase two. This would be chapters nine through 14, which were written after the completion of the temple, perhaps up to 35 years later, So you see, it's a phase one, phase two. And at the heart of this book are eight visions that Zechariah had on the night of February the 15th, 519 B.C. I can't even imagine. Eight vivid (laughs) visions from God in one night. I say I can't even imagine because unfortunately I don't sleep well. I was just talking with a couple of you about your sleep patterns earlier here. I I rarely get into such a deep sleep at night that I dream a whole lot. But when I do, my dreams, let me tell you, they can be pretty vivid. In fact, a couple of weeks back, I was absolutely zonked because I don't sleep well. Usually by the third night, when I have bad nights of sleep, by the third night, I'm so tired that, you know, whatever. And so I had fallen asleep And uh, I was in a deep sleep. It rarely happens. But Kathy said that in the night, I was kicking my legs and I was flailing all over the bed. And she leans over to me and she goes, what in the world are you doing? And I said, well, I'm trying to get the alligator off of me. He's lunging at my legs. I have this, 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 and I, I, I mean, I looked him right in the eye. Vivid dreams right? Sometimes we have really vivid dreams. Kathy's a great dreamer. She will tell me her dreams the next morning. Rarely do I remember a dream. Rarely do I, but I remember that one because I almost got my legs bit off by an alligator. (laughs) So I remember that, but she has really good dreams and she tells me about her dreams. And, and so we come to this book, this, this longer minor prophet book, and there are, there are eight vivid visions here that Zechariah has perfect recall of. And they encompass the first six chapters of the book, and we're going to look at them individually in a moment. But what makes the book of Zechariah so important is the multiple references to Jesus as Messiah. The overall focus of the book centers on the great hope that God will fulfill all of his promises to the people of Israel through the coming Messiah, Zechariah, whose name means the Lord remembers, is the deliverer of the message of God. And so we're going to look at these messianic references today as we work our way through the book. And I'll say this as we begin today, though everything seems to sort of run together here in this book, some of the events described here are generations apart. Some are even thousands of years apart from one another. And so Zechariah begins the book in a similar way that Haggai began his book, 
with a strong call for Israel to repent. And we see that here in verses 1 through 6. And so, again, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Idu, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, and again, This is used often here in both of these prophecies, Haggai and Zechariah. He's referring to the host of angelic armies that the Lord is in control of, the innumerable angels at his disposal. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen, or they did not give heed to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. And so Zechariah acknowledges that one way or another, God always deals with unrepentant sin. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He always deals with unrepentant sin, whether it's in the life of a believer or whether it's in the life of an unbeliever, but God hates sin. He hates sin. And he always deals with unrepentant sin. So the 70-year exile in Babylon happened because of the unrepentant sin of the people of Israel. So it was their flippant attitude toward God that we talked about last week. Let me just take a moment here because I, I think there's some confusion as to what repentance is. We hear the word a lot, right? We hear the word repentance a lot, but confession and repentance are not the same thing. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. Confession is essentially a contrition over sin. It's an acknowledgement that we have sinned. 1 John 1, 8, 9, right? If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so as we see sin the way that God sees sin and we confess that, then he forgives us of our sin and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So confession is more of an acknowledgement, right? So we are to, uh, James 5, 16, we're to confess our sins to one another, right? We're to acknowledge our sins. We're to be sorrowful over our sin, And we're to acknowledge that, even to one another in the Christian life, which doesn't happen a lot, by the way. So that is what confession is. But as I said, repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. There are a lot of verbal repenters. They acknowledge their sin, and they may be momentarily contrite over their sin, but they never change. They never turn from their sin. And that's not godly sorrow or true repentance. That's worldly sorrow. And let me say this about repentance. Repentance is often borne out over a longer period of time. 
but it always involves a turning from sin. Notice what he says. Return to me. Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. It's always an active turning from sin. And sometimes we get confused with the area of forgiveness as well. So we've talked about this before, that there's a transaction when true forgiveness takes place. So a person repents of their sin, which means they have a change of mind about their sin. They see it the same way that God sees it. And then they change. They desire to change, to turn, to do a 180 from their sin. So that is repentance. Forgiveness completes the transaction. And so when there's a person who is truly repentant, we forgive that person and we essentially wipe the slate clean. But there's a two-part transaction to forgiveness. True repentance, true forgiveness. Now, if a person isn't repentant, we still don't treat them poorly. We never return evil with evil. We always return evil with good. Um, But we We're ready for the transaction to be completed, right? We're standing with arms open wide. We're here to forgive. So repentance is the theme, essentially the theme of all of these eight visions that we're going to look at here in a moment. So these visions that we're going to look at cover God's plan for Israel, especially as we began today, as it relates to the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. So let's take a brief look at these eight visions, okay? So you have to follow along in your scripture. This is going to mean nothing to you, okay? These are weird, vivid dream visions that in a normal reading, you may not get it, but I'm going to try to explain them to you as we go through. So the first vision here we find in verses 7 through 17, and this is the vision of the horsemen among the myrtle trees, okay? So in this vision, Zechariah sees a man and some horses among the trees. The man explains that they had gone through the whole earth and found peace. And then an angel tells the prophet that God still loved Israel and would restore Jerusalem. Look at verse 17. Again, proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion, and again choose Jerusalem. The second vision here is in verses 18 through 21, and this is the four horns and the four craftsmen. And so in this vision, Zechariah has shown four horns and four craftsmen in his dream. And the angel tells him that the horns are four are four kingdoms that opposed Israel. That's Assyria, Egypt, Babylon, and Medo-Persia. And the craftsmen are coming, verse 21, it says here, to throw down these horns. See that? In other words, this is a vision that says that God is going to defeat Israel's enemies. The third vision we find in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 2. And in this vision... Zechariah sees a man holding a measuring line. And he asks the man, where are you going? And the man says, well, I'm going to measure the city of Jerusalem. 
So this vision is speaking about God's promise that Jerusalem will be expanded and its people will one day live in safety as the Lord judges Israel's enemies. On to the fourth vision here in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 3. This is the vision of Joshua the high priest. In this vision here, Zechariah sees Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord in filthy clothes. See that? With Satan standing beside him. So Satan is rebuked. Joshua is given new clean clothes. And then God explains that the vision uh, is, is all about Joshua being richly blessed in his service to the Lord. But, but this vision is also symbolic of Israel's restoration as God's priestly nation. And we learn more of that in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6. And then this vision ends with this prediction of the coming of the ultimate high priest, which is Jesus. This is one of the messianic references here, symbolized by a branch and an all-seeing stone. The fifth vision is verses 1 through 14 of chapter 4. And this is the golden lampstand and the two olives. And so in this vision, an angel shows Zechariah this golden lampstand being fed oil from these two olive trees. And there are olive trees all over Israel, by the way, all over Jerusalem, olive trees everywhere. The Mount of Olives, we talk about the Mount of Olives. I'll talk about that a little bit later. There's olive trees everywhere. So the two olive trees are symbolic of Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, remember him from last week, and Joshua, the high priest. And so the golden lampstand represents the temple and those who worship in the temple. God was making the point that his people will finish the work on the temple. And then the sixth vision is the flying scroll. This is chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. In the sixth vision, Zechariah sees this large, this large scroll that's written on both sides, flying over the land. <laughs> so this vision speaks of God's judgment upon those who disobeyed God's law. Okay? The seventh vision is the weirdest of all. This is chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. And in this vision, the angel shows the prophet this basket that could hold an ephah, which is three-fifths of a bushel. And on the basket is a lead cover. The angel opens the basket, and in the basket is a woman sitting inside. And the angel says in verse 8, this is wickedness, meaning the wickedness of the sin of Israel. And then he threw her down into the middle of the ephah. He seals the basket again with this heavy lid. And then two other women appear with stork-like wings. And they pick up the basket, and they carry it off to Babylon. And so this vision represents the removal of the sinful system in Israel during the lead-up to the millennial kingdom where there will be peace. And again, you can read more about this in Revelation chapter 17. Then finally, the, the eighth vision that we find here in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, is the four chariots. And uh, in this vision... Zechariah sees four chariots pulled by different colored horses who patrol the entire earth. Okay? So this vision represents a judgment upon the enemies of Israel. And so after God's judgment against sin, his wrath can rest. And again, Revelation 6, 1 through 8, shows a similar vision of judgment 
also using the imagery of horses. And so that's a lot of minutia, right? That is a lot of minutia, but these eight visions are at the heart of understanding the book of Zechariah. It's interesting, if you're following along, the two middle visions, number four and five, point to God's blessing. In other words, as Israel returns to Jerusalem and rebuilds the temple, they will find favor with God and they will be the recipients of his blessing. And we see that their work on the temple will be accomplished, chapter four and verse six, the famous verse, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So if you're ever wondering what the context of what that is, it's in the context of the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem during this era of time. And it's a reminder that God always blesses obedience to him. He always blesses obedience to him. Maybe not in the way that we would hope or want, but he always blesses obedience. And I think also, this is a reminder that our efforts in life, there's no power in our efforts in our desires to try to accomplish things in this life, especially as it relates to the things of God, there's no power in our efforts, but there's great power in the Holy Spirit of God. And if you are a Christian here today, you have the Holy Spirit of God who indwells you. He's no longer in a tabernacle. <laughs> he, the presence of God is no longer in a temple The presence of God is in you and in me. And this is where we receive the power to live the Christian life. Could you imagine? I I watch, I was listening closely to Brian's prayer this morning, and how in the world does the world deal with difficulties and trouble in this life? They have no power. They have no power within them to get through difficulties. I mean, I I ask the question all the time, how do unbelievers deal with life's issues? There has to be great despair, right? Because this life is all they have. There is no hope that we talked about last week, right? Their only hope is that they get through the day, get through the week, get through the year. Their hope lies within themselves. But for the Christian, it's not that way. Our hope lies within our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Spirit of God who lives within us. It is Christ in us, the hope of glory. So how in the world do unbelievers navigate all the stuff that's going on in our world today? You know, honestly, I mean, I don't like it. I read the news every day. I've got apps on my phone. I read, I read the news every day. I want to make sure that I know what's going on. I don't want to get immersed in it so much that I, that's my entire focus, but I want to know. I, I, I think it being informed as a Christian is important. And so I see these things, and I think, <laughs> unbelievable. Unbelievable. Not just 10 years ago, five years ago, some of this stuff would be un- unimaginable. And yet here we are. And so what is our approach as Christians who possess the Spirit of God, who have the literal power of God within us to to navigate and to live through the Christian life? 
Is it to be in despair and be so wrapped up in the affairs of this life that we lose our joy? That it's so distracting to us that we don't tell people about Christ? You know, the, the answer is not political. I'm sorry. The answer is not political. And yes, I think it's important to engage in the political system, and we should do that as citizens of our country. The answer is spiritual. People need Jesus Christ. That's why on the prayer sheet that's in your bulletin today, we are praying for the salvation of the leaders of our country. Because without the power of God in their life, this is what we're going to get. This is what we have. We don't like it. But you know what? The perspective that I have is it is what it is. It is what it is, okay? So we navigate within what it is. Okay, this is, so I often say this to people. What do we expect from unbelievers? Do we expect unbelievers to think righteously? Well, if we do, we're naive because they're not going to think that way. So this is how unbelievers act. We shouldn't be surprised by it, right? We still are repulsed by it. We still don't like it. We still see it as an affront to God. We can be a voice against it. But what do we expect? See, the answer is not political. The answer is spiritual. And so we must be ambassadors of Christ in this life. The third section of phase one here includes chapters seven and eight. And it's questions about fasting, uh, failure, and future peace in Zion. And as it relates to future peace in Zion, the Lord is quick to mention that his previous wrath on the nation of Israel was warranted due to their sin, but he looks forward to the day that he will do good to them. And so look at verse 13 of chapter 8. Verse 13 of chapter 8 It says, it will come about that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you that you may become a blessing. Do not fear, let your hands be strong. God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but he's given us a a spirit of power because we possess the spirit of God. So we don't need to fear about these things that are going on in our world today. God wins, okay? And a lot of the, a lot of the, the minor prophets help us with understanding that God wins. We're on the winning team. It's like starting a game and going through, and the other team is beating us as we go through the game, but we have this peace because we know in the end we're going to win, And that's what it is. God wins in the end. We are on the winning side. So we move to phase two here in this prophecy, and it's really like hitting the fast-forward button because chapters 9 through 14 were written after the completion of the temple. Again, possibly up to 35 years later. But here we find two oracles regarding Jesus the Messiah's first and second coming. And I love this. This is, this is fascinating. I looked up all of the Messianic references in my study throughout the week. It's just, it's fantastic. It's phenomenal. But one of the things that came to mind as I was looking at all these Messianic prophecies, and we'll, I'll show you what I mean by this in just a moment, 
is the Old Testament prophets didn't have a complete understanding of all that was delivered to them. I'll show you that here in just a minute. One of the things that you you can't forget is Zechariah's prophecy here was some 500 years prior to the birth of Christ, okay? So I can make a prediction about something that could possibly happen next week based upon a lot of information that I have, right? Still could be wrong, most likely would be wrong, but I could make an informed prediction. They have nothing to inform them other than some of these uh, prophecies here but they, they, they make these, 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 they record these predictions, they record these prophecies, and then we see them perfectly fulfilled in the New Testament. This is remarkable. This is 500 years before Jesus. And you'll see the, 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 the precision of these prophecies. So here we have the two comings of Jesus sort of smashed together as if they're back-to-back with nothing in between. So go to uh, chapter 9. Go to chapter 9. What the Old Testament prophets didn't have that we have the knowledge of, they, you see, the church was a mystery in the Old Testament. Okay, So we have these two references to the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus here back to back in verses 9 and 10, and it seems like it's like boom, boom. But there's literally thousands of years in between these because the church age was a mystery in the Old Testament. The church was inaugurated in, in Acts chapter 2 at the Feast of Pentecost, right? So we have the book of Acts. It's a history book. It tells us all about the inauguration of the church. So Acts chapter 2, at the Feast of Pentecost, Peter's preaching this amazing sermon. The Spirit of God is working, and thousands of people place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And at that time, the Spirit of God comes and indwells them like He does us. Prior to that time, we see the Spirit working in the Old Testament economy, but He did not indwell believers all believers at the time. He would come on and he would empower believers for a specific period of time, for a specific purpose. But now we possess the Spirit of God. And this all started, the church age started in Acts chapter 2. So I'm going to read verse 9. It refers to the first coming of Jesus as a babe in a manger. And then right after that, he talks about the second coming of Jesus, and it seems like they're bunched together, but we're in the holding period between the two. The church age is the holding period that the Old Testament prophets did not understand. So look at verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's speaking of the, the, the coming of Jesus, the first advent, the first coming of Jesus, when he came as a babe in a manger. His mom, Mary, the virgin, gave birth to Jesus. He lives a perfect, sinless life for 30-some years on this earth. 
He goes to the cross of Calvary willingly and gives up his life to die in the place of sinners like us. So he takes upon himself the very wrath of God. He bears the wrath of God for us and dies in our place to provide salvation for all who would trust in him. So that's the purpose for the first coming, right? To die on the cross. So he dies on the cross. He's placed in a tomb for three days. And then we talked about this on Easter. He's gloriously resurrected. And then he's on the earth for 40 days. And he he talks with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. They see him in a glorified body. And then he ascends, right? He ascends up into heaven. Remember from where? From the Mount of Olives, right? He ascends up into heaven from the Mount of Olives. And John 14 tells us that he is preparing a place for all those who will place their faith and trust in him. Can you imagine the glorious nature of what heaven's going to be like? I mean, you know, all the stuff that's happening, my focus isn't on this as much. I mean, we've got to navigate it. My focus is on that. For eternity will be with Jesus. He is the risen Savior. So you have that in verse 9, and then you have verse 10. This is the second coming of Jesus. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the house from Jerusalem, and the, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. Is there peace now? No, this is yet future. This is in reference to his millennial kingdom or his millennial reign, which he will reign in peace. Turn over to chapter 14. So chapter 14 begins by detailing the events that will precede the Lord's second coming. Okay? So again, a lot of this ties closely with the events that we see in the prophetic books, like Daniel, uh, Revelation. But look, look at verse 1 of chapter 14. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, and houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Does any of this sound familiar? The, the lead up to the battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation period. Verse 4, in that day, his feet will stand, where? On the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move forward to the north and the other half toward the south, and you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Ju- Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. So, if we try to put this together, this is the description of the coming battle of Armageddon. And I was there... Uh, I tell my pastor friends, I, it's surreal 
to walk where Jesus walked. It's surreal to see these things. So I have to share these things with you because it's my own sort of personal, the, the influence of being in Israel on my understanding of these things. So it's called the Valley of Megiddo now. This is where the Battle of Armageddon will take place. And so we were at the top of Tel Megiddo, whole nother thing here, I won't get into it, but we're looking out upon this vast land where this battle will take place at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. So during the seven years that the church has been raptured out and is not there, there's a antichrist that takes over. In the first three and a half years, he tries to, you know, nestle up to the people and get them to turn his way and to listen to him and everything. He turns awful in the second three and a half years. He makes this peace treaty with Israel, and so Israel thinks, ah, he's on our side, and, and then he breaks the treaty. He breaks the treaty, and all the nations of the world come after Israel, and they gather at this valley of Megiddo for this great and final battle that leads into what we know as the millennial kingdom and ushers in his second coming. So that's what the description is here. So he's going to, he, there's going to be this, 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 this flood of armies that are going to come against Israel, all in this location that I was at. They're going to come at Israel, and Jesus is going to descend down back to the Mount of Olives, which is in very close proximity, by the way, to the Valley of Megiddo. He's going to descend down to the Mount of Olives, very explicit here, right? So the same place that he ascended, he will descend, he will come back down, and then he will single-handedly stand in the place of Israel and whip all the nations. And that will usher in this thousand-year millennial period, and he will set up his throne, and there will be peace. There will be peace in Israel. And so all of that should give us tremendous hope. That's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. God wins. He wins in the end. All of the forces of the world come against his people, Israel. He whips them. No problem. He is God. Satan is bound for the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ and he reigns in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, in the temple, seated on the throne of David, in the location where there's a Muslim mosque right now called the Dome of the Rock. No sweat for Jesus. So this should give us great hope. Don't fall into despair. Don't look around and go, gas is $5 a gallon. It's going to six, seven, eight, ten, whatever. What are we going to do about it? We can live for Christ. That's what we can control. We can be salt and light in the dark world that we live in. We can be ambassadors for Jesus. That's what we can control. If you struggle with discouragement, go from cover to cover here in Zechariah, all 14 chapters, this would be a tremendous book for you to read because it's about hope. It's all about hope. 
1 Thessalonians 4.13 reminds us that even when we think of the death of a loved one, we are not to grieve like those who have no hope. Colossians 1.27, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Romans 8, 24 and 25, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, through perseverance we eagerly wait for it. Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, that unwavering hope that serves as our motivation to encourage one another in the faith. The Apostle Paul took the time to speak into the lives of the believers at the church at Thessalonica on the importance of encouragement when he said this, 1 Thessalonians 5.11, therefore encourage one another and build each other up. You hear me say it all the time. The world's not going to do this for us. We must do this for one another. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, and let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And so while the book of Zechariah is full, contains its share of judgments on the people of Judah and beyond. It overflows with hope in the future reign of the Lord over his people. It's so easy to get caught up in the difficulties of life and to lose our perspective and live as people without hope. But we have a hope that is sure. This isn't, I hope the Eagles are good this year. I hope the Eagles go to the Super Bowl this year. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is a certainty. It's what we eagerly look for and look toward. We have a hope that is sure, folks. And it's the reassurance of the minor prophets that help us to understand that they're saying what's going to happen in the future. Eight vivid visions in one night, all to help us to know what's coming in the future. That hope should be our motivation each and every day in our lives. We should think about it every day. This isn't it. This isn't all there is. This isn't it. Christ in us, the hope of glory, the magnificent hope that we have as God's people to one day be with Christ our Savior forever in glory. That should be exciting. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again this morning for your love to us. Thank you that you have provided your son, the Lord Jesus, to be what we could not be for ourselves, the perfect sacrifice that you would accept in place of our sin. Lord, we have the great hope. We have the great hope that we will one day be with Jesus forever. And we thank you for the minor prophets. Even though they're obscure, they're in the back of the Old Testament, they're rarely looked at, but they've been rich. They've been so rich and reassuring to us, and we thank you for that. 
I pray for anybody who might be here today that doesn't know Jesus as their Savior, that you would work in their hearts and lives today and draw them to yourself. We thank you for doing that in our lives. May we live like you've done that in our lives. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.